Bitcoin Brief. Hi, you may have arrived here because you heard about the Bitcoin halvening and were thinking, what the hell is Bitcoin? Never mind the halvening. So this is going to be a really quick video to try and explain everything about Bitcoin and money in the UK. So first of all, you might want to know why the hell you would bother learning about Bitcoin and uh, like what's wrong with just using normal money and my Visa card or my MasterCard, using Apple Pay, that sort of thing. Well, I should say that I don't think there's anything wrong with using that. Um, and all those systems kind of work and they're great for us. Um, the problem is not everyone in the world gets a chance to use those services. So it's a bit of an unfair system. It's a bit of a protectionist system. It keeps us away from uh, other countries um, and for other markets. And really, if we want free trade around the world and to be able to buy stuff from people uh, in China or Africa or Australia or America or Canada, if we want to buy people from anywhere in the world indiscriminately, and um, to sort of avoid imports, exports, like let's just call it one big market. Um, Bitcoin is a really good way to do that. So let me explain, explain how sort of banking and stuff works in the country at the moment. Um, so although the history of uh, British pounds maybe comes back from sort of a gold or silver backed commodity of some sort, like there were gold sovereigns at some point uh, in our history, um, in reality, what we use at the moment every day is called fiat currency. And more specifically, we use uh, commercial bank money. So uh, your bank, whether that be RBS, Santander, HSBC, whatever it is, one of those commercial banks is giving you a commercial bank money in your bank account. And how it does that is a sort of uh, d double entry bookkeeping accounting flip-flop of uh, we'll put these numbers into your account um, and then put these numbers into our sort of assets because you then owe us that money and we'll just call it quits. So that, that's how money originates, or at least that's how most money originates nowadays. A really great website to go to if you actually want to understand this process is Positive Money. If you Google Positive Money, they've got a really good explainer of exactly how this goes on. It's a little convoluted to say the least. Um, so what, what that means um, is that commercial banks can um, pretty much just poof money into existence. And the only thing that would really be stopping them from doing that is that if they poof money into existence and then you pay your money, say if RBS poof money into existence and put, put that into a sort of, uh, give you a loan and you take that money and you put it into a bank account with RBS, if you pay somebody for, um, I don't know, a house or a car or something like that, that you got the loan for, if you pay someone that has a Santander bank account, then RBS are going to need to actually move their central bank reserves from their account at the Bank of England, which is our central bank, into the um, account of Santander at the Bank of England. And so if they give out loads and loads of loans, and those people just happen to pay money into Santander's account, uh, people who have bank accounts at Santander, then RBS will become illiquid because they're having to move all of their assets, um, their central bank reserves, to, uh, they're to give them to Santander. And if they give all of them to Santander, they still have to be able to back up other people's deposits in their bank, 
So they would then have to borrow central reserves from other banks, maybe even Santander, at interest. So they would very quickly become completely insolvent and die. And then everyone who had an account at um, RBS would lose all their money. Which is kind of what would have happened in 2008 if the government didn't prop up the banks. So how it did that was by something called quantitative easing. So quantitative easing is a horrendously boring accounts trick, which essentially um, is what happens. It's kind of confusing, I'm gonna check my notes. So what happens is um, if spending is reduced, if spending is reduced, the money supply decreases. And the aim of the central bank is to keep inflation at 2%. And they can't do that if uh, spending is reduced. So um, what they do is uh, the central bank buys, so uh, Bank of England buys something called gilts, which uh, is like the UK word for bonds. You might have heard bonds as well. They buy gilts from the government. Um, and as far as I'm aware, the government just sort of, they just produce these gilts and say, okay, well, we need some money, so we promise to pay you back. Here's a piece of paper that says we'll pay you back at a specific interest rate. Uh, yeah. And so the government just writes up these gilts. Uh, the central bank buys them. Um, and the central bank will also buy stocks uh, free-floating on the market. And they'll buy derivatives, uh, mortgage-backed derivatives usually. Um, and this does a number, number of things. It increases the value of assets, um, like houses. It increases the value of stocks, and therefore companies. It increases the uh, value of government bonds, what, because they're buying all this stuff, so that's demand side, but there's the same amount of supply. So what that also does is reduces the interest that each of those things will have on them. So if loads of people are buying bonds, the interest on them will go down because people still want them. So you don't need to give them as much interest as a reward. Um, and essentially, the, the new money is kind of generated by, I would say it's kind of generated by the government's guilt. So it's kind of like the government just printing money to some degree. In a weird electronic flippy floppy way, quantitative easing, you could just say counterfeiting. They're just counterfeiting money out of nothing. So that's the government counterfeiting. Now the commercial banks, like I said before, is also counterfeiting, but they're limited by the fact that they're gonna run out of money eventually if everyone pays the, that money into other accounts. So it's all a balancing game of how much money can we get away with making out nothing before we actually become insolvent. So there used to be something called a reserve ratio, and you'll, you might have heard of fractional reserve banking, and that kept them all in check. They said, oh, well, by government decree, you must have at least 10% of your deposits in reserve. So that means, um, you know, if you, were, uh, if you had a bunch of people with accounts that were, uh, I don't know, a million pounds, just for easy numbers, then you would have to have at least 100,000 pounds of gold sitting there so that if 10% of your customers came back, you could actually pay them back. That's right, you only needed 10%. How ridiculous is that? That comes out, that's born out of no one really wants their gold back. It's too inconvenient. So roughly only 10% of people will ever want their gold back. Um, so there used to be that reserve ratio. Now, 
they just kind of blew that out of the water and were like, do you know what? You don't really need a reserve ratio because literally no one wants their gold. No one wants um, the, uh, literally no one wants their central bank reserves because they're too cumbersome. So you know what? Let's just uh, stick to our commercial bank money. Um, and let's just say, we'll just keep making loans until we run out of money. And if we do run out of money, then the government will just print a bunch of gilts, um, sell them to the central bank, and the central bank will fill our uh, reserve accounts with all sorts of extra assets so that we can loan central reserve, uh, sorry, central bank reserve notes from other commercial banks to then pay them. So it's a horrible convoluted system of uh, double entry bookkeeping, which um, I think may well be replaced by Bitcoin simply because it's more efficient. Um, it's, it's more efficient. There's less of this horrible double binding reliance on sort of authority figures and governments to, to sort of control the economy. Really what we want is for no one to control the economy, for the economy just to free float, um, for the economy to respond to real world events rather than arbitrary decisions by stupid politicians. Uh, even smart politicians get it wrong, you know? Um, and I think what's wrong with it is, um, like no one should really be in charge of this stuff. You know, um, why do we just accept that the uh, central bank is gonna set rates um, that doesn't make sense to me because um, that doesn't change anything in reality. Uh, you know, if they just say, oh, 2% inflation, that doesn't change anything. Um, them setting the rates or uh, raising the rates from zero, it doesn't change anything in reality, you know? Interest rates should be determined by the market of how many people want to borrow money right now. Um, that's what should determine interest rates. How much can you get away with charging people? I don't mean in an evil way, just like, what are people willing to pay for that? That's what should set interest rates. Um, so yeah, the, the, the UK has a really fucked up financial uh, system going on right now. Um, and although Bitcoin sounds quite complicated, in comparison to actual British pounds, it's simple. So there's a couple of things you need to understand um, in order to sort of get the simplicity and the beauty and the simplicity of Bitcoin. Um, the first of those things would be cryptographic hashing or just hashing, let's just say hashing. Um, so what a hash function is, is a mathematical function that is really easy to do one way and almost impossible to do the other. So if you imagine cooking eggs, easy to do, uncooking an egg, I wouldn't even know where to start. As far as I understand, it's actually possible, but you get my point. Um, so there's a couple of examples of that, and um, like we're as a uh, as a sort of population, as a civilization, we're quite familiar with hashing functions in everyday use. That's what we use to do all sorts of things, from encrypting passwords. Um, if you've got an in encrypted internet connection, it uses some form of hashing algorithm to to obfuscate sort of keys and that sort of thing uh, to generate keys for secure. Uh, connections. Uh, so we're quite familiar with that um, through using the internet. Um, so it's nothing that special on its own. It's really the combination of things that's special. So that's hashing. Something that's easy to do one way, really difficult to do the other. So proof of work uses hashing. 
And that's the next thing you need to understand. So proof of work um, is the way by which the Bitcoin network can come to consensus. Um, because if you, if you want to run uh, kind of like a ledger of ownership, like a an, uh, sort of bookkeeping on who owns what in terms of Bitcoin, if you want to keep that decentralized, as in not stored on a server in London, but stored on everyone's computer who wants to participate in the network, then what you need to do is um, have a way of each node checking that the information they're getting is true and valid and correct. Um, so proof of work, that's what I'm trying to explain. So proof of work. If you imagine that really all the Bitcoin network is, is just sending transactions to each other. Imagine if you send a transaction, um, there's no way for that the receiving party to determine whether you've sent that transaction to someone else as well. Um, so let's, let's dial back. So, okay, so proof of work. Proof of work is an idea that I think came from something called hash cash. So what that is, is nothing to do with uh, cash actually, it's to do with email. So if you imagine a spammer is sending a million emails a day, really annoying everyone, then Hashcash would be a way to stop spam by saying that, okay, and the important part here is without forcing anyone to do anything. What you can do is if you agree with everyone on the internet and you say, okay, so for emails to be valid now, what we need is a proof of work of say 10 seconds. We need to prove that you worked for 10 seconds to send that email. What that does is limit people to sending like 3,000-ish emails a day because that's how many, you know, 10 seconds there are in a day. So um, how you do that physically or programmatically is you take the email and you add a little random number, random string of numbers, and we'll call that a nonce. So if you take the email and the nonce and you put it into a hash function, what it does is it scrambles it all up, hashes it up and gives you this output. And that output is unique to that exact input. So if you change this nonce, you'll get a completely different output hash. Um, but every time you keep the nonce the same and the message the same, the output is exactly the same. So if you keep doing that, so, so if you do that, let's just say it's the hash output is really super random, but tied to this input. Um, what you say is you say that valid emails must have a hash output that has five zeros in front of it. So you think, oh, well, that's easy. Well, I just find, find a hash output with five zeros and, and then work backward. But you can't because it's a hash function. So you can't take a hash output and get the input data from it. So you would just get, like it's impossible. So what you need to do is you need to try with a random nonce. You use your input and a random nonce and you see the output. It doesn't have five zeros in front of it. So you take the input and a different random nonce and you see the output. Oh, it has two zeros, oh, okay. Next, and you keep trying different nonces and you keep hashing and you keep trying and trying and trying and eventually, just completely randomly, eventually, you're gonna get an output that has five zeros at the front. 
and then a bunch of other dig digits. And so you can send the email. You send the email, you send the nonce, and you send the hash output. And then the receiving computer says, okay, you can see the hash output has five zeros at the front of it. Okay, all good. Let's check. So they take your message and they take your nonce and they hash it and right enough, it has five zeros. So it's a valid email. Here you go, uh, email reading client program. That's a valid email, it's not spam. And that's that sort of hash output with the five zeros is the proof of work because you can't find that hash without actually hashing the message and the nonce. Done, you've proved it. So simply by saying, I will not accept emails if they don't have uh, a proof of work with five zeros at the front, you're not using force, but you're, get, you're making sure that you don't receive spam. You can only receive messages that someone has actually worked on for 10 seconds. Perfect. So when I say 10 seconds, it sounds like I'm plucking that out of the air. So the reason I can be confident in that is by a method, uh, method called, um, well, in Bitcoin, we've referred to it as difficulty. You're changing the difficulty of hashing. So you can kind of approximate that difficulty by saying, well, the more zeros you're asking for at the front of that hash, the more difficult it is to find. So if you find that you are starting to get some spam, all you need to do is say, okay, well now, now let, let, let's say six zeros, I need six zeros or seven or eight, um, whatever, maybe you all agree, 10 zeros is actually what you need, 10 zeros at the front of a hash, and then that's the proof of work I require. So changing the number of zeros is kind of like asking for lower and lower numbers. Um, if you imagine zeros are at the start, um, and then it's, yeah, so zeros at the start, and then say like the lowest number would be zero, 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 one. That would be the lowest number um, and the highest difficulty. So really you're just asking for any hash output that is lower than this number. And so in Bitcoin, we refer to that as the difficulty setting. Um, so because the hash, hash output if you use a random nonce on your message, the hash output will be pretty much random. Um, when you're asking for a, a more difficult proof of work, you're really asking for a smaller set of numbers out of the random possible numbers. So if you're only asking for two zeros, then there are loads of hash outputs that have two zeros at the front. But if you're asking for 17 zeros, there's like maybe only a handful of answers. And so it will take an astronomically long time to just randomly happen upon that particular output. Um, so that, that's what Bitcoin does um, to adjust to more and more computers and faster computers coming onto the Bitcoin network to mine for Bitcoin. The reason, it, so it's the block time in Bitcoin is 10 minutes. And the reason it's able to keep it at 10 minutes is that every 14 days, roughly, um, it takes a look at the average time that it took for, for the, each of those blocks to be made. And if it's eight minutes, for example, then it will put the difficulty up so that it, on average, takes another two minutes for the network as a whole to find uh, a block. So, that's why the difficulty goes up so quickly when new technology comes out. 
like uh, application-specific integrated circuits, the ASICs. Once they came out, whoosh, the difficulty went up really fast because there was so much more hashing power on the network. Okay, so hopefully I've explained hashing and proof of work um, and difficulty changing. So the, the, the mining reward is, uh, the way that works is, um, so the Bitcoin network is basically a network that um, shares around all the transactions on the whole network. There's something called the mempool. The mempool is just where transactions are stored before they've been verified. And so they're waiting to be verified in the mempool as all the current um, transactions, usually within the last 10 minutes that have been submitted to the network. So someone just, if I want to send Bitcoin, I just broadcast a transaction to the mempool and then all the nodes share the mempool. Like, okay, the transaction is uh, available to be put into a block. Um, so when I say a block, what that is is basically just a list of all the transactions that are currently in the mempool and they go and they stick it into a block. And so that's kind of like your email message was in the hash cache exam example. So if you've got a block of transactions and then you add a nonce, which is a random number, and you hash that and the output conforms to the proof of work requirement. So it has enough zeros at the start that the output is a valid block. And you say, okay, great. That is a block. I'll broadcast the whole network. Say, right, find it guys. Everyone shares and validates and says, okay, these are the transactions. That's the nonce. It hashes, yep, yeah, it's got enough zeros at the front. No problem, check. And they start working on the next block with the new transactions that are still left in the mempool or the new ones that have been submitted since. So in doing that, um, so, so that, that's a very simplified version of what happens. There's one little bit, so, it's, so there's the transactions, there's the nonce. One bit I left out was it also takes the output from the previous block, puts that in as well. So transactions, output from pre previous block, output of the hash, previous block, and a nonce, and it hashes that. And so the reason you do that is because it, that proves that you didn't start work on that block and until you had received the previous block. So that is the, in essence, what creates this blockchain. So it's a chain of blocks and, and it's limited by the necessity of having the previous blocks hash within the data that gets hashed in this current block. I hope that makes sense. Um, it, it means it's impossible to get a valid block without first having the previous valid block. And that is the kind of foundation on how you, you decide among thousands of peers all over the world who is right. So the reason you need to do something like this is say, say I've got some Bitcoin and I send one transaction, um, let's just say I have two computers and remote servers and access to them. I use the same Bitcoin at two opposite sides of the earth and I say, okay, I wanna spend this, this Bitcoin and send it to John and this Bitcoin and send it to Katie. So the, the, these computers can only do that because it's decentralized. So it doesn't need to check with anyone first. It just broadcasts the, the uh, 
transaction and yep, they, they're both valid. The local nodes will get them within a microsecond or so and be like, yep, valid, propagate it, propagate it, propagate it, send it to all the nodes. And eventually, in theory, half of the world will agree that John now owns the Bitcoin and half the world will say, actually, no, Katie does. So there's a conflict. Um, and what, what the proof of work and the blockchain do is allow the system to come to consensus when there is a conflict. So as soon as slightly more than half of the nodes are saying that John owns the Bitcoin rather than Katie, um, assuming that all of these nodes are hashing constantly and proving their work, um, they have slightly more work going into them or hashing power going into them. So they're slightly more likely to find a block, the next block. And as soon as they find the next block, it basically cancels out this, this block. So if there's two blocks and they disagree with each other, they're sort of working. So you imagine, uh, so it's one chain, so it's a block, 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 and then it splits into two with the John Katie dilemma. Um, and then they're both working, both working, and then block. This one goes first, say. So the, the John chain finds a block first. And so this one goes, oh, there's an even newer block. And it starts working on that one. This block, the Katie block becomes orphaned. It just gets ignored. No. So it'll always work on the longest chain. So if these are somehow separated, I don't know if uh, the, Great Wall, the Great Firewall of China gets blocked off and there's like a chain on China and then they take the firewall down, they rejoin. Whoever was faster at generating blocks, um, whoever has the longer chain, say there's five in this one and four in this one, is the actual chain. These one, the computers that were working on this four, four chain will just be like, oh, there's a five chain. And they'll jump across and start working on the longest chain. And keeping to that very simple rule, so each individual node that's working on the network, if they keep to the rules and say, I will only ever work on the longest chain, then we will always come to consensus. And that's how you avoid any double spending of Bitcoin. And that's how you get this wonderful decentralized machine that is the Bitcoin blockchain and the Bitcoin network. Um, and it is, uh, it is a wonderful thing. For the first time ever, we have um, like a pure money which is entirely digital. And the cool thing about that is it's kind of like having, kind of like having gold. So ra rather than this, uh, rather than this fiat money, which is, or fiat currency, which is kind of just a proxy for actual money. It's just like the government says, this is money because I said so. That's all that really is. And everyone in the country tends to go, Oh, well, yeah, things are, tend to be easier if we have a universal currency. So let's just say, okay, yeah, we accept that it is because the government said so. If the government will accept this for my tax payments, then great. Um, I guess I can use it to buy food and stuff as well. And everyone just kind of agrees. It's like a social contract. Everyone just agrees to use it. So if we can convince enough people that Bitcoin is real money, which I think it is, I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it is. Um, you know, it's uh, it's divisible almost. I, I think infinitely d divisible. 
I mean, 100 millionths of a Bitcoin would be a Satoshi. And we can go even smaller than that if we need it. Uh, so it's really divisible. Um, Durability-wise, I mean, it's electronic, so it's infinitely du durable. Um, it's portable to, I mean, as much as emails are portable. Um, it's, uh, it's scarce, so programmed in um, with this happening going on, you know, it's going to happen, happen, happen until it gets to zero and we'll end up with 21 million Bitcoin, roughly. Um, so it's scarce, really scarce. Um, and it's, uh, it's fungible. So any Bitcoin is worth exactly the same as any other Bitcoin. You know, there's, there's no way to tell the difference between them, really. Um, so, it, yeah, and they, they don't have a great... They, I mean, that is their whole purpose. They don't really have a function other than as money. So you're not going to lose, like theoretically, like gold and stuff you could make into jewelry. And so that's an argument against using something as a currency if you can use it. Like you would never use, well, I say you would never. It's not a particularly good idea to use oil as money, for example, because the value in oil is in burning it. So it's not a really good store of value. Whereas Bitcoin, you never really need to burn Bitcoin because the only use it has is in storing value and, and transmitting value. So hopefully, um, all we really need to do is, as long as everyone is happy to accept Bitcoin, um, you know, with that whole social contract thing, then Bitcoin can absolutely replace fiat currency. Um, and it will take power away from governments. It will take power away from central banks. It will take that power to help the economy that they use. Um, and I say help the economy because I think that meddling in things like interest rates and meddling with, um, you know, whether or not Greece can be a super socialist country, if they really want to be a socialist country, like go right ahead, um, in, in my opinion. Um, whereas of course the, the European Central Bank won't really let them because of all their sort of debt swaps and all their sort of banking problems. And Italy's looks like it's going the same way. So I think that's a real shame because that's so far removed from what money actually is and um, or rather what money should be which is a really sort of, it's just a means of exchange and a store of value. And no one should really care about it other than it serving that, that function. And I think it should do that and not have any political sort of associations and just be, well, yeah, if you need to exchange value with anyone in the world, use this because it's perfect. And it's sort of, it, it regulates itself you know, with the whole changing of um, a difficulty. If loads of people suddenly, like if governments suddenly buy a shitload of computers and start mining on the Bitcoin network, the difficulty will just go up, you know, that doesn't change anything. Um, it's, it's impossible to cheat that system. It's designed specifically so that no one needs to trust it. Like no one needs to trust each other because the Bitcoin network is sorting all of that out. In a sense, that's what, that's what mining fees are. They're, they're, paying people for contributing power to this massive system that verifies transactions and is, it's kind of like a uh, yeah, it's like a decentralized benevolent uh, being if you like 
not really, but it's like a autonomous system. It fixes itself. And I mean, there, there, don't get me wrong. There are thousands of developers that work on Bitcoin in terms of improving the protocol and suggesting improvements for it. Um, and I think that's a great thing as well. And I think that is being done in a decentralized way. Um, it, it kind of, so, so Bitcoin has now made it possible for people to actually realize the anarcho-capitalist dream of everything being completely voluntary. So exchange between people being voluntary, um, it sets out the foundation for that to be possible. And now all we need is to, and I think the phrase is used a lot, but to sort of wake people up. Um, we need to allow people to find this information, understand what money is just now, what money could be, what money's supposed to be. And uh, I think that's gradually happening. People are realizing that individuals can make a difference. Individuals can say what their preference is and they can do what they want. And if it doesn't go well, they can try something else. And if it goes well, they can keep doing more of that. And I think, uh, yeah, so I, I think Bitcoin is absolutely the foundation on which we will build a voluntary society, a voluntary global society. Um, where we're free to associate as countries if we want. Uh, we're free to associate with like-minded people all over the world if we want. Uh, and we're free to just stick to ourselves if we want. Um, so I think I've probably spoken enough about this. Um, please do ask questions uh, in the comments. I try to answer every single comment. Um, as long as there are not hundreds, uh, I, I stick to that. I will answer every comment. So please ask questions. Um, there are loads of resources online. The problem being there's not a lot of filters for what's correct and what's not. And I would love to help people understand Bitcoin. I can provide links to specific questions that are being asked. Um, and I can point you guys in the right direction so that you can better understand exactly what's going on um, and uh, whether or not you want to be part of that. So thank you so much. Um, and uh, I will uh, I will see you next time. Thanks. Bitcoin brief.